Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like... I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, and, and I, I had the same going question. through the Bokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine head I'm on your shoulder and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is uh, carefully and meticulously. It was a weird one to write because every time I tried to outline... It was a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the story. You cannot, you cannot do these stories. Or how, we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Travis M. Andrews. Andrews is a feature writer for the Washington Post. His first book, Because He's Jeff Goldblum, the movies, memes, and meaning of Hollywood's most enigmatic actor was published by Plume earlier this month. The book is what Andrews calls a semi-biography, semi-celebration of Jeff Goldblum. It also looks into the shifting nature of fame and celebrity. I know that sounds super serious, but... My goal with it was to just have fun and entertain the reader. I thought if someone wants to sit down and read about someone like Jeff Goldblum, they want to have a good time. They, they probably care more about, you know, feeling the, the vibe of Goldblum and that kind of the, the joy that I think he brings. Andrews did not talk with Goldblum for this book. The actor, or his publicist, passed. But Andrews did talk to upwards of 80 people who have worked with Goldblum before. And he read every single interview that Goldblum's given, and he watched every single movie that Goldblum has appeared in. That's a lot of reporting, and it gives a big picture view of the career Goldblum has had. Interspersed with those thoroughly reported chapters, though, are interludes. The interludes are short pieces, some of them fictional, that Andrews wrote. They are hilarious and tackle things like haiku written about Goldblum, and an imaginary interview with the actor. One's a play where a Goldblum, a young Goldblum meets his older self. And I thought that, you know, like you said about the very beginning, I was trying to signal the intent that this is gonna be hopefully interesting, hopefully thoughtful, but also fun and funny and just a good time. Just a warning, I actually share a haiku in our talk. Andrews writes for the Washington Post's style section where he covers the internet, pop culture, and the ways we live now. Before joining the Post, he was an associate travel and culture editor for Southern Living. He's also written for Time, Esquire, GQ, and The Atlantic, among others. As usual, I've linked to a lot of Andrew's work on the website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, the podcast. Dot com. Travis, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. 
Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really excited to talk with you uh, today about your book, your first book, right? Yeah. Because he's Jeff Goldblum, the movies, memes, and meaning of Hollywood's most enigmatic actor. Uh, it went on sale on May 4th, uh, published by Plume. Um, before we start talking about the book, uh, I would love for you to read literally the first five sentences that start the book off. Absolutely. This comes from chapter one, which is uh, titled Goldblum Erected. Look, this is going to be a strange book. I'm sorry about that. I truly am, but there's no way around it. This isn't by design. The nature of the subject simply demands such treatment. Jeff Goldblum is a strange character with a strange story. I'm really curious about how I, you know, I read the first two sentences and I started laughing immediately, right? Because this is going to be a fun read. <laughs> Was that like, were those the first sentences you wrote when you started writing this book? Yeah, they, they were. It's funny. There's like a tiny little reference just for myself in there. When I was like a kid, when I first read uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, I just loved the way Vonnegut opened chapter two with the word look. And so I always thought if I wrote a book, I wanted to open with the word look. I don't know why. It was just kind of something for me. I knew no one else would kind of pick up on that because it's so small. And so I kind of had that. And I had the line that Jeff Goldblum is a strange character um, with a strange story. And I don't know, the rest just kind of flowed. I, I, It's a weird thing when you're trying to figure out how to start a book, particularly since I had written an article that kind of blossomed into this. I was like, how do you how do you walk into it? And uh, that's what I came up with. So tell me about the book itself. Uh, and then I'd, I'd love to know, tell me a little bit more about that article that you wrote that kind of blossomed into the book. Absolutely. So the book, I always call it, it's like a semi-biography, uh, semi-celebration of Jeff Goldblum's life and career, and also a semi-rumination on the kind of the shifting nature of fame in the 21st century. My goal with it was to just have fun and entertain the reader. I thought if someone wants to sit down and read about someone like Jeff Goldblum, they want to have a good time. They, they probably care more about you know, feeling the, the vibe of Goldblum and that kind of the, the joy that I think he brings people more so than, you know, where, what street did he grow up on? I mean, that's, that's in there, but I think people care less about those kind of details. And it all sprung from an article I wrote for the Washington Post. Uh, I was at work one day when Goldblum was releasing his first jazz album, and I didn't know he played jazz. I actually didn't know a tremendous amount about him, uh, no more than probably your average moviegoer. And I remember like talking to my colleagues and asking, why is Jeff Goldblum still so popular? He was an A-lister in the 90s, sure, but like we're in the you know late 20, 2010s and this guy was just omnipresent. And all my colleagues like, at the same time, like as a chorus, were like, because he's Jeff Goldblum, like, duh, it's self-evident, you should know. And I was like, I'm so curious about this still because that's not really an answer. My editor, as editors are wont to do, is like, well, why don't you write about it? figured out. So I did. Um, and the piece really focused on sort of how fame has changed in the 21st century. And that sounds a little heady, but really how the internet has erased the idea of time. So a still from Jurassic Park can live on a, a online alongside, you know, something that's happening today. And it allowed people like Goldblum and contemporaries like Chris Walken, Bill Murray, Keanu Reeves, Adam Sandler, to, well, Sandler's not a good example, but the rest of them uh, to kind of remain relevant even when they weren't doing big projects. And I found that interesting. And then I started watching all of Goldblum's movies out of curiosity. And then I really kind of fell into this just thought that this guy is really fascinating. And I bet, uh, I bet there's a good book to be written about him. Yeah. How many of his movies had you seen before this? It's a good book? question. Um, 
I've seen all the main ones, right? So I'd seen like Jurassic Park, Lost World, Independence Day. I would say I probably saw, had seen a third of movies that he appeared in. One of the weird things about Goldblum, he's so often in a movie for like 10, 15 minutes. I mean, he's in Annie Hall for 15 seconds uh, or so. He he very much is a character actor who will show up and kind of be in something for a little bit. So one thing that I realized was how many movies I'd seen him in that I didn't realize he was in, which was kind of interesting. I was like, oh yeah, he does kind of show up here for like this little bit. So you do a lot of report. There's a lot of reporting here, right? I mean, cause Gold- Jeff Goldblum was like, yeah, no, not going to help out. Um, I want to talk about how you read, you know, everything that you did to pull this all together. But before we get to that, how much time did you, did you really try and get Goldblum on board? I did. Um, I, I tried, you know, I reached out to his publicist a few times and that was a little odd because I don't think the publicist told him or his team because then his manager reached out to me. I was like, I hear you're writing this book. I was like, yeah, I've been in touch with you guys a lot. And then I realized yeah, these things are always so weird when you're dealing with like celebrities, like teams. And, and sometimes you realize maybe there's some communication missing there. Um, and he was very kind, uh, his manager of 30 years and wished me best of luck with the book, said that uh, Goldblum was going to pass. But I got the feeling, and I can't say this for sure, I got the feeling they were okay with people talking to me because the number of people in his orbit who were happy to chat kind of surprised me um i kind of got the feeling at one point oh is he gonna reach out and say you know don't talk to this guy he's writing this book but uh overall they, they were super kind and gracious and seemed to be good with me writing the book even if he wasn't going to be involved yeah you know do you think when you reached out to these people do you think that that they then reached out to him and said hey should i talk to this guy you think that I happens think- I think the manager probably did. I got the feeling the publicist just kind of gave a a hard pass. And one thing you kind of learn in journalism when you cover pop culture is that I think happens a lot where the publicist will pass on behalf of the talent. Um, I got the feeling the manager probably spoke to him. And in reporting the book, I'm not surprised he didn't want to be involved because he's very, I don't want to say cagey, but he doesn't open up a ton in interviews. He does seem like a private guy. Um, and I wonder if they thought the book was going to be more your traditional, let's dive into every detail of this guy's personal life kind of thing rather than what it is. Yeah. And you mentioned a lot of the interviews that he has given. I mean, cause that's a, pri- a really big primary source material uh, for you. Um, uh, and, and we can talk about that, but if you did get to interview him, what, what's the first question you would have asked him? You know, that has changed. At the time, honestly, I had no idea what I would have asked him at the time. (laughs) Why why are you so popular? Um, What I'd ask him now, what I'm super curious about, is part of the the theme of the book is that one reason why people like him and one reason that he is unique is because he really follows his own muse. He, He insists all the time that he's not a careerist, which feels phony when you're like, how can you then end up in the biggest movie in the world at the time in the 90s? But then you start to look at, and I really truly think he might not be a careerist. Um, In the 90s, when he was so at the height of his fame, he could have done anything. And instead of taking more A-list movies or capitalizing on that to release his album then, he just kept playing jazz at a small club in LA once a week and started doing these indie projects and a lot of which fail and a lot of which, you know, succeed, but even not commercially. And it felt like, it truly felt like he was just doing whatever he was interested in. And one thing that I'd be very curious to ask him now is 
you know, he's towards the end of his career. Looking back, having not had a plan and having kind of followed that, how do you feel about your career? And would you change anything? Would you do things differently? Because it's been an odd career. He begins in the 70s and 80s working with some of the, you know, most vaunted directors of our time, Robert Altman, Lawrence Kasdan, Phil Kaufman. Then he becomes this A-lister. Then he has this weird string of indie movies. And now he's kind of just an internet meme more than anything. Um, and a personality, almost a character himself. Yeah. So, so reporting wise, um, what was, what was the first thing you did? I mean, aside from reaching out to, to Goldblum's management, what was the first thing you did once you, you got that, that book contract and you knew this thing was actually going to happen? I mean, other than maybe party for a little bit. <laughs> Yeah. After the champagne was finished, um, my uh, my girlfriend's a librarian, which is uh, very helpful when you're writing a right, book. Definitely. So we went uh, to her library at George Mason University where she works, and we just pulled every interview, every article, everything we could find on Goldblum. I watched everything he was in. I read everything that had been written about him and watched every interview. And then I started reaching out. Um, I did it movie by movie, project by project, and I would reach out to everyone on a set. There's a great writer, uh, Gavin Edwards, who has written a few books like this, uh, The Tao Bill Murray, um, one about Tom Hanks, and he gave me really good advice at the beginning of this project, which is, it's good to talk to the, the big director, it's good to talk to the famous actor he's in the movie with, but you want to talk to the guy who worked craft services, you want to talk to the people who were on the set, who were just eyes and ears and just kind of there, and he was absolutely right, those are the people with the best stories and the most insight, and uh, so I would go to a project and just reach out to anyone and everyone and see who would uh who would get back to me did you ever count up how many people you reached out to and then how many people you talked with oh i have not counted and i feel like <laughs> i would be like my gmail box i ran out of space at some point so, um i must have reached out to hundreds and i think in the end i probably talked to i don't know 60 70 80 people altogether. um here and there, little bits and, and drabs. And the other thing I was doing too is reaching out to journalists who had come from over the years and critics who think about them um, and cultural critics today who kind of study this stuff, trying to get this, this full picture of this guy uh, without his involvement, which is an interesting thing to do. Uh, was there anyone that you reached out to and really talked with that like that, that conversation really sticks out in your mind as, as maybe being the most helpful in, in understanding Goldblum? Interesting, most helpful. So one that sticks out that wasn't necessarily the most helpful, but was just the most fun was Harry Shearer, the uh, legendary comedian and Simpsons voice actor who was in The Right Stuff with Goldblum. And he, you know, in an interview like like we're having right now, you you try to be professional. And, and this one, I was just in tears laughing because Harry's stories were so funny. Um, I do think Lawrence Kasdan was really insightful. Um, the director of The Big Chill and Silverado, he he was great for kind of providing this early context of who Goldblum was. Um, I found that very useful, but towards the end of the book, I was speaking to a couple of grips on, uh, on uh, the Grand Budapest hotel who honestly, those guys were probably the most helpful. Cause again, you get kind of the, the, the famous person's going to say, Oh, this guy's a good guy, et cetera, et cetera. They have a reason to, but the person who like worked on one movie, who can also kind of give you the same insight, I think is the most helpful. So yeah, I, I would say not one person necessarily, but everyone I spoke to who continued to kind of back up the things that I already heard and made me comfortable, you know, putting them in a book and saying, this is fact, this is true, uh, 
is the most useful. That that's one thing you you just bring up one thing that as I was reading I was thinking and you may even I think you even bring this up in the book itself is how do you write a book about somebody um, where there's no um, there's no real angst right there's no like no one is saying oh my god he's horrible right like <laughs> literally everybody and so we're there's no conflict there in a lot of ways right. so so what i mean what was that like as you were you're hearing all of these stories and, and then as you start thinking okay i've got to write a book <laughs> what, what's going to keep the reader going it's a very good question it's something that i kind of thought about a lot throughout I was always more interested in kind of the big picture idea of the book why that, that kind of why why do people like him and I guess in my head that created a conflict for me as the writer that helped me kind of put it together if that makes any sense but as far as keeping a reader going I did think about that a lot and you know at work we write two, 3,000 word pieces that sometimes don't have conflict. They are a kind of, um, I wrote like a celebration of Joe Pesci that people seem to really like, and there's no conflict there, but it was shorter, right? So it's easy to kind of spend that few minutes with it. And so one thing I thought with the book is, okay, I think we need to structure it in kind of a different way. And so one thing that I did was I thought about the book as 11 essays um, that do connect, but that also can stand alone and you could just pick up anyone and, and read it. I think there's value to reading them through because they're callbacks and jokes and things like that. But I also then decided let's split these up with these interludes that I put in, which are just these weird little segments that go between chapters. One's a, a fake interview with Goldblum. One's a play where a Goldblum, a young Goldblum meets his older self. And I thought that, you know, like you said about the very beginning, I was trying to signal the intent that this is going to be hopefully interesting, hopefully thoughtful, but also fun and funny and just a good time. And those interludes were kind of trying to, to signal that. One of the interludes is a fake news story um, about the, there's an actual death scare uh, where people thought Goldblum had died. And the opening line of the book originally, though my editor very smartly was like, this is just going to confuse people, is Jeff Goldblum died on whatever date that was. <laughs> Uh, we move that to, I think, after chapter seven or eight. But yeah, so the idea was to like signal to people, you don't have to kind of take this seriously and, and be searching for that conflict. Right. And I think um, you actually mentioned the death scare. It, it's the next sentence after what you read <laughs> at, the start, at the start of the show. Um, the interludes. I was I, That was one thing that I found uh, really fascinating and obviously a different type of writing. Right. Mm -hmm. So what was that like? Did you write? I'm, I'm so wonkish in the writing and also the reporting. Did you write all of the regular chapters in like a row and then all the interludes and then sprinkle them through? What was that process like for you? So in addition to, to my work, I'm, I'm not a published fiction or humor writer, but I do that uh, just kind of as a hobby. And the way that I generally write my journalism and I write my fiction is a little different in that the journalism I tend to write in a piece. So I tend to do my reporting, have everything together. I like to go for long walks and just kind of let it arrange itself in my head a little bit. And then I sit down and I kind of write. When it comes to the fiction, the humor stuff, and particularly the interludes, I kind of do them piecemeal. When I have an idea, I just kind of throw it in a document or a notebook. And then I kind of later look at all that and try to arrange it. So that's kind of what I did. I knew 
I knew a couple of them that I was going to do. So I knew I was going to do a fake interview and I knew I was going to do the play. So I would just, if I had an idea for a funny line, I was like, oh, that could be good. I'll throw it into to Doc. And like, one thing about the fake interview is I really wanted to capture the way he is in interviews. And I had read so many that oftentimes when I was reading one, if like I would see a phrase he uses or something, I'd toss it into that doc because I knew I'd like come back to it and use it. So, so um, you mentioned uh, moving lines and such into docs. And I'm assuming, are you talking like, where, how do you organize all this type of stuff when you're reading all of these magazine um, articles and, and interviews that he's done and you're watching all of his movies and no doubt taking notes while you're watching the movie, right? That's a, that's a really awesome job. I think I could do that. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't do it as well as you have, but, um, and you're interviewing all of these people. How do you organize all of that? That's a really good question. And I think it is actually probably my biggest weakness as a writer and a reporter. I'm not the best at organization. I definitely could be a lot better. Um, one thing I did with the book is because I thought of it as 11 essays, I tackled each one individually. So uh, chapter two, uh, for example, is sort of the the origin story. It's called it. It's his childhood and it's, you know, that kind of basic fact. So I would have two word docs and one I just kind of split up by interview. If I said interviewing, um, you know, a teacher of his, I would put teacher's name and then have all the important quotes from the interview. I record all the interviews, transcribe, and then I pull all the relevant information. And that doc just grows bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, <laughs> which is the tricky part. Um, but once I have the structure of the chapter in my head, I kind of know what's going to go sort of where. And so then I'll go into that doc and I'll go to the part where say I'm talking to a teacher and a fellow student and these notes from his childhood. And I'll write that section of that chapter. And then I'll go and I'll write the next section of the chapter going to, to those notes. Um, I think that, I think the more organized person would probably have a better way because I do often find myself going back and adding things into chap like parts I've already written and things of that nature, particularly when I'm interviewing people like, um, well, we mentioned Lars Kasdan. He directed him in two movies. So did Phil Kaufman. And both of those guys, two movies are in different chapters. So uh, that interview, I would kind of go back to and have to like add into a, an, another chapter. But uh, but for the most part, it's chaos. I just have boxes and boxes of materials. Um I printed everything out. I think I'm a big believer in printing things out and highlighting, underlining, taking notes on the margins. I am grateful to computers and the internet for mostly my career, but I do think there's extreme value in printing things out and really kind of pen to papering it. How long did you spend on this? About a year. So the proposal process I don't know if a lot of people know how proposals work, but basically you write a sample chapter and you outline the whole thing. Um, so the proposal took maybe three months. And then once it was greenlit, I spent another year writing it. But oddly, the proposal process is where you're pulling together a lot of this information. So you kind of go into the race, you know, with a with a, like a little bit of a, a lead. Were you also still work, uh, writing for the post as well while you were doing the book or no? Were you able to get Yes, some time I off? did not sleep much. Oh man. I think I took 3 weeks book leave altogether, which uh you know, for the next one I might uh, <laughs> might take a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. Um so so what type of stories were you writing uh for the Washington Post while you were working on the book? It varied, but at the time I was covering uh 
kind of disinformation, conspiracy theories, QAnon, uh, which obviously is a little bit heavier than what you'll find in the book. And in a way, retreating uh, into writing the book and, and having this kind of moment of joy uh, was was really nice. I, I think I even say that at a couple points in the book, that one thing I want to do with it is kind of just bring a little happiness to a world that uh, that's struggling, that's hurting. And I was seeing that you know, firsthand at work every day. There is uh, there's some amazing artwork throughout the book as well. Can you can you talk about that and who did it as well? Absolutely. No, major props to Lee Cox, a wonderful illustrator. She did the cover, which I just love. Um, my favorite part of the cover, she added, uh, Jeff Goldblum's wearing a, a suit, a very bright suit with a tie, and she added dinosaurs to his tie, which I thought was just a perfect little touch. Um, and then she did another 11 illustrations throughout the book. She is wonderful. Uh, once we had her on board, we kind of kicked around ideas and we wanted the artwork to reflect the tone of the book and kind of be a little a little goofy, but also still a little serious. And Lee just, she's just incredible and really nailed that down. And we kind of came up with some fun situations for a couple of the images, like uh, one that's the character of his from Buckeye Bonzeru uh, meeting uh, the Swabs felt Goldblum we know today. Do you... Uh... Do you know, obviously, I think you might have told me this already, but do you know if he's read the book yet? I don't. And uh, I feel like I keep going back and forth in my head. I feel like, do I want to hear from him about it? I feel like if I do, it'll be for one of two reasons. Either he really liked it or he really hated it. I think it would be the former. It's a pretty, it's a pretty celebratory book. But uh, no, I'm super curious. And I, I keep coming back to this idea, too. If someone wrote a book about you, would you want to read it? Yeah. I don't know. That's it. Yeah, I, me neither. I, think, I feel like I wouldn't want to, but I would with like one eye closed. I'd have to. I think I'm egotistical enough to where I I have to read it. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> how could you not? It's, it's just be sitting there. Well, I wanted to tell you one of the interludes, uh, which we talked about just a couple minutes ago. Um, but one of the interludes is uh, Jeff Goldblum haiku, <laughs> and you actually asked readers to send you in <laughs> haikus about <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. Um, and I'm a horrible poet and haiku writer, but I did find a way to take some some stuff from your book and turn it into a haiku. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to share it with you right now. Yes, it's actually from the dedication, actually. So, oh, nice. Dedicated to, so that he'll read the damn thing, Jeffrey Lynn Goldblum. That is perfect. That yeah. should have been the dedication. I flipped it. <laughs> I did it wrong. <laughs> I think I only took out one word, so um, <laughs> that's amazing. But, uh, but no, I have. Uh, has anyone sent you haiku yet? <laughs> I've gotten a couple. Um, I'm hoping a deluge is coming. I, maybe like if I get enough, the next book can just be the book of Goldblum haikus <laughs> right. as uh, as curated by me. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in one minute with more from Travis Andrews. This is Gangry the podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism and Sports Media Programs at Fairfield University. Digital Journalism is designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to succeed in today's quickly changing media world. Students take courses in everything from big data storytelling to podcasting to narrative journalism and more. Sports media is a new major that prepares students to work anywhere sports-related content is produced. Students take courses in journalism and broadcast communication. They can also take courses in public relations, film, and more. 
To learn more about the digital journalism and sports media programs, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Travis Andrews, the author of Because He's Jeff Goldblum, the movies, memes, and meaning of Hollywood's most enigmatic actor. The book was published by Plume and is on sale now. Well, I'd like to, to switch gears just a little bit and talk about your work uh, at the Washington Post and what you do and, and kind of how you've gotten to where you're at. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about what you do at the Post? Sure. Currently, uh, so I work for the style team, which uh, is newspaper speak for features team. Um, people often think that means I cover fashion, which I, <laughs> I don't tend to. Um, but so I work for the features team. Currently, I cover internet culture. Previously, I covered pop culture, and oftentimes I'm kind of covering the intersection between the two. The day that uh, that we're talking, I'm about to write about Adam Sandler and how he has become a meme, which might be a theme in my, my writing. Um, so internet culture is, is a very wide and vast sort of sort of beat. It's a little nebulous because it, it covers everything. All of life touches on the internet. So I'll cover everything from platforms like TikTok and YouTube to um, misinformation. I covered QAnon for a while. Um, so it's really all over the place, which which I enjoy. It allows me to, one of the things I like about journalism is you can get interested in something and just learn a tremendous amount about it very quickly um, to put together a piece. But then the next day or the next week, you can focus on another subject and, and learn an awful lot about that. Um, and before that, I was working uh, on an overnight team covering national news how what what makes you interested because obviously you you're interested in internet and pop culture when did you realize that that was something that you really did want to get into when i was young i was i was a big reader a voracious reader of fiction um mostly not a lot of nonfiction. but i got really into to rock criticism a lot of music um growing up in new orleans and just generally enjoying music and i remember one of the first real books of criticism I read, I started reading Chuck Klosterman, and I realized, oh, you can write about pop culture in this fun way that incorporates humor, that incorporates sports, that incorporates kind of intellect to some degree. And I was really fascinated by that. And then, you know, I started reading the greats, the Pauline Kales, et cetera, of the world. Um, and I really wanted to do that. Um, Never thought I actually could. Never thought that was an actual career path. I, I feel very lucky. Um, but yeah, ever since I started reading them, I knew that that was something I wanted to, to try my hand at. You mentioned Chuck Klosterman, uh, and I, I'm going to bring him up because uh, he's the one person in your book who I said, hey, I've talked with him because he was a, <laughs> on my podcast. Um, what uh, what was it like to, to talk with him and to kind of – how did he help you kind of pull, like, understand Goldblum a little bit more? Absolutely. It, it was wonderful to talk to him. I've interviewed him a few times for pieces, and he always just comes. I don't know if he comes prepared or if his mind just works that way, but his insight is just always very incisive, and uh, and he's always fun to, to chat with. Um, he, I, he and I talked a lot about Goldblum's – we talked about the changing nature of fame, and one thing that he said that I really love that stuck out to me was – how we define what fame means. Um, 
if I remember this correctly, and I, I could be misquoting uh, this from memory, but we were talking about how an actor like a Jeff Goldblum or Keanu Reeves might be more generally famous, but then someone like Jake or Logan Paul on YouTube has much more rabid fans who kind of would recognize them. And so which, which person's more famous and, and how does that work? As Klosterman said, uh, I do know this quote's correct because I loved it, that he would be the most famous person at a KISS concert, like the eighth most famous person at a KISS concert, but in regular life, he's a nobody. Um, and I thought that was really interesting, just kind of trying to think about what does fame mean and why do I think Jeff Goldblum is famous and beloved when, you know, maybe you go talk to a 15 year old and they're like, who's Jeff Goldblum? Oh, that guy from the internet. And yeah, he, he just really helped me think about that and contextualize what, what that means to be famous and how that really has changed. I mean, it's obvious to say, but the internet has created all these, all these rabbit holes for everyone's niche interests. And so then the idea of fame completely changes. One thing that I always say is that I think if you, like I said, ask like that 15 year old who Jeff Goldblum is, they might not know the name, but they probably know the face. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean exactly? Does that mean he's famous or not famous or what? So Klosterman and I talked a lot about that, um, which I just thought was kind of really fascinating and very much uh, the way Chuck thinks. There's um there's been a lot within the last year, I think, and, and maybe this is partly because of the pandemic, but there's been a lot of pieces on influencers, right? Mm -hmm. And what and who who they are. I know um, Rachel Monroe had a piece in the Atlantic, I think, about the number one TikTok person who is apparently from my backyard here in Connecticut. A oh, Charlie! I, I profiled um, her for the post uh, right. last year. So, I mean, what, 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 what's it been like doing that type of reporting? How is that type of reporting on, like this, you know, kind of the way we're shifting um, culturally, uh, compared to like how you're doing the reporting for um, a book on on Jeff Goldblum? I think first and foremost, and this might be obvious, they're much easier to access. So I, we uh, did a big profile, one of my first pieces for the post as an internet culture reporter was a big profile of Charlie D'Amelio, who's the number one TikToker. And she, um, she was leading this campaign at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, where people would do dances uh, and hashtag it. I can't remember what the hashtag was, but basically it was promoting social distancing, et cetera, et cetera. And um, Governor DeWine of uh, Ohio, like asked her to do this so it was kind of a, an interesting thing but she was you know not necessarily difficult to to get on the phone uh and friends of hers and other influencers they're, they're a lot more accessible which i think is part of what draws people to influencers in general they feel more accessible where your kind of classic celebrity pipeline Part of the idea is they're removed. Part of the idea is that you don't fully know them. Um, where in social media, the idea is that you do know them. You are friends with them, even though you're obviously not. And so it's interesting to have their input. Just that's like A, the, the, the obvious difference. Um, but B, there's such a transitory and ephemeral nature to it. Influencers come and go. You, you have to you know, write about people when they're having this moment, because that moment might pass in a week. And in a way that Brad Pitt's been famous for 45 years, right? And he's not going to just not be famous tomorrow. You're still going to be able to write about him tomorrow if you wanted to. Whereas, you know, I don't want to name any particular influencer, but, you know, who knows what will happen in a week? Um, 
the internet really causes these these big spikes, this magnification of a moment um, without the lasting impact. And I think I'm really interested by how that affects culture in general, just the sort of, I mean, all the obvious stuff, our attention spans, I think are getting shorter. I think that it's changing everything. One thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is um, I should have a piece on this out by the time this comes out. So hopefully I'm not scooping myself, but how legacy TV writers deal with something like a TikTok or a YouTube, how do they write television that, you know, you'll see once a week, or maybe if even drops all at once, it'll drop all at once, once a year with someone who can create 15 TikToks in a row that are all 20 seconds and that really hit people's, you know, dopamines uh, centers. So it's been really interesting. Um, when I covered pop culture, I had a framework for what it was. And I think that's the other huge difference. With internet culture, I tell people that and I say, what does that even mean? And honestly, I don't always know. My editors don't always know because it truly does change every single day in a way that your classic pop culture structure does not. Sorry, that was a really rambly answer, but it's a really no, good question. I, no, I liked it. And actually it made me think of when when I think Rachel Monroe's piece on on Charlie and the other, you know, teen influencers came out, I showed the article to my 13-year-old daughter and um she's like, "Oh yeah, I know all those people." Mhm. Mm and exactly. I had never heard of any of them. Exactly. I mean, when I started covering this beat, I'll be honest, I did I wasn't familiar with Charlie. I didn't even have TikTok. And yet, to some people, to a younger generation, she's one of the most famous people alive. And that delineation, you know, I, I'm 33, so I can't really speak to it, but I'm curious if that delineation never existed before. If we go back to the mid-90s, when people like Goldblum and Brad Pitt keeps coming to mind and Angelina Jolie and the Friends cast, like they seem pretty universal regardless of age. Right. It seems to me like you knew who Seinfeld was, no matter if you were 13 or if you were 45. And that just is not the case anymore, I don't think. Well, when you, uh, when you, when you went to college, I'm always curious about this. When you went to college, were, did you go to college and major in journalism? I did, and then I switched my major. So I went to LSU, um, and I'm from New Orleans, so right up the road. And when I got there, they have a great daily newspaper called the daily reveille and i was still trying to figure out what i wanted to do um fiction was still kind of my my love and my calling at, so as a creative writing major at first and then i learned of the newspaper and realized that they would pay you to write which is pretty cool <laughs> right and so i started working in the entertainment section and then I, I really fell in love with journalism so i switched my major to journalism um after a weird stint as a physics major and <laughs> then i had an internship I remember a journalist telling me, look, you write for a daily newspaper already. You're not going to learn anything really new in journalism. If you can prove that you can write for a newspaper, major in something else and use that added knowledge to your journalism. So I went back to creative writing uh, and majored uh, in film uh, writing. Yeah. And it was good advice, I think, because you truly do learn journalism mostly by doing. I mean, there's some stuff you need to learn, like how do you put in a FOIA request or something, but it's all pretty, pretty basic. Um, really, you learn it from doing, being edited by great editors and et cetera. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so if present you, 33-year-old, you went back 
12, 13, 14 years to college you and said, okay, you're going to write a book about Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> what would you have said? I said, what? No. Why would, why would I do that? Who's Jeff Goldblum? What's he even doing these days? I mean, because I went to college in 2005. That was really in the, the period where he was just not around. Um, I just said, that's that's a really weird topic, particularly for 13 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did. Uh, the book, Because He's Jeff Goldblum, The Movies, Memes, and Meaning of Hollywood's Most Enigmatic Actor, is on sale now. Uh Thanks so much for talking with me, Travis. Oh, thanks for having me. This has been a blast. I've been talking with Travis M. Andrews. Andrews is the author of Because He's Jeff Goldblum, the movies, memes, and meaning of Hollywood's most enigmatic actor. The book was published by Plume and is on sale now. As usual, I've linked to a lot of Andrews' work on the website, you can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the Integrated Media Labs at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the digital journalism and sports media programs, as well as the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.